Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. I'm Austin Meek with Waco Business News, and you're listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco Business. My guest today is real estate investor Travis Bauckham. We talk about how he found the self-storage space, his favorite developments coming to Waco, and his experience with a franchise that got him on the path to small business ownership. But first, it's the word on the street. Before our featured interview, I want to take a moment and recognize the passing of a titan in the Waco business community. Mike Bidwell was the president and CEO of Neighborly, the world's largest home services company. Formerly known as the Dwyer Group, Neighborly has its global headquarters on the Brazos River near the entrance of Cameron Park. Neighborly has more than 5,000 franchise locations across six countries and is the only international company to call Waco its home base. Mike passed away suddenly and unexpectedly last week. He helped build Neighborly into a $3.5 billion organization that's changed the lives of thousands of people, helping individuals realize their dreams of business ownership. Mike began his career in 1984 as a franchise owner for Rainbow International Carpet Cleaning and Restoration, the first wire group home service franchise. He became the first multi-concept franchisee in the system and eventually served as COO and president of three different brands after selling his franchises and joining the Neighborly corporate team in 1995. I've been working at Neighborly since the beginning of 2020 after I finished doing stuff with Pokios, and I have been so benefited and blessed by getting to know this guy, Mike Bidwell. He is that type of guy who, once he meets you, he doesn't forget your name, and you don't forget meeting Mike Bidwell. We've had a lot of stories shared about Mike Bidwell and the Neighborly family over the last week or so. Two of them I want to share with you now. One of them is a coworker of mine got through college and realized later that her college, which had a scholarship called the Bidwell Scholarship, was paid for by Mike Bidwell and paid for out of his own pocket. Another friend of mine who's in the organization um, is a black man. And he is part of our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee that we have at Neighborly. And there was an opportunity earlier this summer for Neighborly to participate in an event, but it cost $10,000. And the answer to my friend was, hey, sorry, sounds good. We know DEI is important, but we just don't have the funds. Mike Bidwell himself stroked a $10,000 check so that me and my other Neighborly employees could learn about Juneteenth and the importance and the impact of that event. So Mike Bidwell was a true leader, a true servant leader in every sense of the word, a great Wacoan, 
And I wanted to make sure that we mentioned him here on this program to let the Waco community know how important Mike Bidwell was, not just to me as a neighborly employee, but as someone who lives here and calls Waco home. So Mike, and to the Bidwells, to Joy, and to all those beautiful children and grandchildren, we love you, we appreciate you, and our thoughts are with you. We'll have our conversation with Travis Baucom in just a few moments, but first, it's the Business Review with C.J. Jackson. Risky Rides. I'm C.J. Jackson, and this is the Business Review. Embracing new innovation means embracing the unknown, especially for investors who target emerging IPOs. David Dix, an assistant professor of finance, uncovers insights situated at the crossroads of innovation, risk, and investor behavior. So the mathematical model we're thinking about is things we don't know that we don't know. If we have this new thing and we don't really know if it's going to work out. Research shows investors prefer to invest in new IPOs if there's a degree of diversification among assets with similar levels of uncertainty, mitigating risks to a single investment. This results in higher investor sentiment. While corresponding waves in positive sentiment have been mysterious, the study's model highlights hedging as the pivotal factor. Baker and Wurgler from Harvard had noticed that there are times that there's high investor sentiment and everybody goes to the IPO then. And there's times that sentiment stinks and nobody goes to the IPO then. We show that investor concerns about uncertainty, what they don't know, motivate entrepreneurs to time their financing decisions, resulting in IPO waves and therefore the boom and bust cycle of innovation. We're saying the reason why sentiment is high is because there's a lot of opportunity to invest. So it's not that the sentiment is driving the investment opportunities. It's that the entrepreneurs strategically wait to finance their investment. And then we all go at once. So the reason why there's these periods of high investor sentiment is precisely because there's lots of new innovation. The Business Review is a production of Livingston and McKay and the Handcammer School of Business at Baylor University. You can catch the Business Review Thursdays on Morning Edition and All Things Considered on KWBU Waco Public Radio. I'm now joined in studio by Travis Baucom with Balcomi Capital, a real estate investment fund. Travis, welcome to Downtown Depot. Thanks for having me. I see you've got your Aggie ring on, but like me, you spent some time in College Station and ended up in Waco. What brought you here? Yeah, back in 2012, I, we uh, we were living in Dallas, and uh, my wife and I had our first daughter. And uh, Dallas, for us, was way too hectic to raise a family. And so we were looking for, we looked at several mid, uh, you know, mid-sized markets, and we ended up choosing Waco primarily for the um, just the family values that Waco has and the easeability to buy a house, the easeability to uh, find you know business partners, that sort of thing. Has Waco grown the way that your wife, Christina, and you had thought it would grow back when you were looking? We didn't move here because of the growth. We moved here because uh, of the stability. Uh, when we moved here, downtown was still kind of uh, lame. There wasn't a lot going on. So, yeah, it's definitely changed over time, uh, I would say, for the positive. Uh, quite a bit of growth, quite a bit of, of because you know TV show help, Baylor winning multiple Big 12 titles definitely helped um, put a spotlight on Waco. Uh, and then I, I think as larger cities become more unaffordable, uh, towns like Waco are going to really thrive. 
your most recent category you've been spending a lot of time in is the self-storage space, which I want to hear about. I know you've been helping develop a neighborhood right here close to Baylor campus in the Oakwood area, but I started this episode off talking about the passing of Mike Bidwell, who is the CEO and president of Neighborly, which is the world's largest franchisor of home services. So Neighborly, for people who don't understand, Neighborly owns concepts like Mr. Rooter Plumbing, Molly Made Cleaning, Mosquito Joe Pest Repellent. And what Neighborly does is they provide support for franchise owners who want to be their own small business owner, but really they're looking for a business in a box. And they've done that with tremendous success as in the home service space. But franchising is much more than just Golden Arches. It's more than home services. There's actually real estate franchises as well. And that's where you really cut your teeth here in Waco with the Homevestors franchise. Yeah, I get I would say I'm incredibly blessed and lucky to have been able to buy that franchise. Uh, before that, I was struggling. I was flipping a couple of homes a year. I was a realtor. wasn't on. I, I was not a very good realtor in in several ways. Um, I just did not uh, have what it takes to be that um, person focused. Um, but yeah, the Homevestors franchise. When we purchased that in Waco, we were the only ones in Waco at the time. Homevestors has you don't have exclusive territory, so you can have multiple franchises. In a, in a market. And so we were the only ones to have that franchise for about 18 months. And uh, that was like throwing gasoline on a fire. The first month, I think I got 28 leads. And I remember being like, this is so easy. There's people call me and they, I, I get to go buy their house in a distressed situation. I get to buy it. We renovate it or we sell it to other investors. It All of a sudden, my life got seemingly pretty easy. <laughs> and so we, were, we, were, uh, we ended up buying that first year, I think we bought 57 houses our goal is to buy 15. Uh, and then it just went from there. Like the next year after that, we ended up getting close to mine 80 to 90 per year for a good three years. And then I ended up selling it off. House flipping works really well when the market is going up and when there's a lot of distress in the market. And all of the distress has kind of had kind of worn itself out. So it was a great franchise. Really thankful for that time. Uh, if it wasn't for that franchise, I'm not entirely sure how you know, how, I, how, how I would have got where I'm at now. There's a yearly study that's done, this cost-to-value study, where it measures the, I think it's the 25 most common home improvement projects that people will take on. It looks across all the major markets in the country, and it helps you determine, okay, it costs X. When you actually go to sell the house, this is what you're going to get in terms of value for what. For the last three years running, the number one most valuable remodel you can do for a home is replacing the garage door. Is that right? <laughs> I, would, I would have said the kitchen or the bathroom. <laughs> that That's actually lower down on the list because a lot of times people will get over their ski tips when they're doing the renovations and, oh, hey, I want to have this marble instead of this granite. And then it's just you pour so much money into it that you don't get the money back. But, yeah, the garage door replacement to really give the entire home a different look, that has proven to be – the single most valuable thing you can do when remodeling a home. Currently, this year in 2023, that's actually number two. The very first most valuable thing you can do is to electrify your HVAC system. That's what you get to know when you live in the home services world like I do. But you you learned a lot from flipping these houses. What would you say is the skill set that was honed most intently during your time of owning this Homevestors franchise? My answer is going to be a little bit uh, different than what you'd expect. I, you know, I could say, well, I got really good at hiring subs, or I got really good at buying houses, or I got really good at finding capital. But really, ultimately, fortitude is what really became a great skill set for me. 
everything went as smoothly as you would expect it. And it's not just because it was the home investors or it's not because it was the house buying business. It really, all businesses in general have a good amount of challenges and negativity. And in fact, I would say positive experiences are the, you know, the product of a negative experience. And so really learning how to function, learning how to continue to move forward in the midst of a good amount of opposition is probably the best thing I learned when I had this home investor franchise. I would imagine it's quite rewarding to be in a business like that where either A, you are helping people get off of their home that they need to get off of for one reason or another, or secondly, you're able to beautify a home and allow someone else in Waco to come in and live there. Our first foray of like really changing a street was when we moved to Columbus. So I got to move my whole family to a house in Columbus. The house is leaning up against a tree. We bought it for $40,000. It was 2,800 square feet. Really, it was we were buying it, buying it for the grass, but we ended up redoing the house. We finished that house, and like right next door, the gentleman was moving to Hawaii, didn't know what to do with this house, so we bought that house as well. And then down the street, we ended up buying a couple more houses. And uh, within about an 18-month span, we ended up changing four houses of about a 10-house little you know, block. And uh, it was amazing how much different the neighborhood felt when you would just do those houses, like you could see more people walking down the street and they weren't people headed to Pinewood or they were people headed to Waco Montessori. I got to walk my kid down the street uh, when he was at Montessori. It's really great because you can drive down a street, any street in Waco right now, and you're like, man, so many of these houses need to be updated. Um, and then you start seeing kind of a, a slow change where someone will do you know, house A and then someone will do house C and then someone will come back and do house B. And ultimately, like you, it, it ends up changing the neighborhood and makes the city way more beautiful than it otherwise would be from city infrastructure changes and that sort of stuff. One of the under-discussed benefits of being in that uptown area you were mentioning was there's a diverse housing mix. There's single-family households, there's townhomes that are there, there's apartments that are there, and most of the other neighborhoods in Waco are simply single-family, so you can only attract a certain type of person to come there. It allows for more neighborhood diversity when you have different types of housing. Right. And another thing about the diversity is there was, there was Hispanic, we had Hispanic neighbors, we had black neighbors, and all that really worked out well. Like some of our favorite neighbors ever we've had were our cross street neighbors. Every Mother's Day, he would play, he would bring in a mariachi band and play songs for his wife. And I, that was one of my favorite things about living over there <laughs> is every, every Mother's Day, I'm like, oh, it's Mother's Day. We get to, I'm going to go out and drink coffee on the, on the porch and listen to the mariachi band. <laughs> that experience of of being in that diverse neighborhood in the uptown area probably formed a lot of your mentality for developing this Oakwood neighborhood development. You've been able to do much more comprehensively. Can you explain a little bit how you found that deal and what the thought process was in developing it? Yeah, we found the Oakwood deal uh, from a builder who had kind of got a little ahead of himself and think he was a little worn out from some projects not going well. And so, and where is this exactly in Waco? 12th 12th and Oakwood. So it's in between LaSalle and Primrose, or LaSalle and Southern Terrace. Okay, so South complex. Waco. Yeah. Yeah, so we bought five lots, and we bought two houses on top of the five lots, and we redid. We um, One thing we learned from Columbus is you kind of have to buy everything at once, because um, if you don't buy everything at once, you have a hard time that once you fix up half the neighborhood, the other half of the neighborhood you can't buy it in a way to make a profit and also beautify it. Because they're just going to stick you with yes, it. They know exactly. it's the one holdout. <laughs> they're yeah. like, hey, wait, I mean, you, we're, we're going to want the 200 grand as opposed to the 50 grand that we 
that you bought all the other houses for. <laughs> and so we ended up doing the whole roll of, we did four houses and then we did, uh, we flipped a house and then we had ha- two houses across the street. We built another house there and then we flipped another house. So we had a total of seven houses all in a row. So in the past, when you take a left on 12th Street to Oakwood, it was pretty desperate. It was a, a church that was falling down and the, and the gentleman we bought it from, he actually tore the church down and replatted the entire replatted that one and a half acres into, into lots. And then, um, and so you would turn, you'd see the church, it's crumbling down. I think it was red tagged. And then you would see a whole bunch of desperate houses. And so what we did is we ended up going in there, you know, building the same model, but cut, changing the colors, changing the facade a little bit. So it's really bright, really poppy. And uh, we've essentially uh, sold them to Baylor parents who wanted to have, you know, they wanted their kids to own a house or they wanted their kids to be in a house that they owned but it didn't cost 700 grand like it does on the Baylor side of LaSalle. They were paying 400 grand as opposed to uh, 700 grand. So they, it was an af- you know, quote unquote affordable product to, to Baylor parents. It was a safer neighborhood because we did so many of the houses. And, and generally speaking, I hope the rest of the neighborhood continues. We probably won't be a part of that. We've um, as previously mentioned, we've kind of switched our model to more uh, industrial uh, self-storage facilities. But it really is satisfying when you get to do that to a neighborhood. Being able to control the look of it in such a wholesale way, it takes a lot of investment at the beginning. How were you able to stack up your capital? You know, we've been flipping houses since 2012. Back then, what we would do is we would buy a house and we'd go find a private investor. So a gentleman that maybe has a hundred grand in his 401k or his uh, Roth IRA. He's tired of the stock market, and he wants to put it in hard assets like asset or a loan, and we'd pay him 10 12% on that. We'd be in and out in four months. He'd get his money back. He's satisfied with his return, and we also are satisfied with our product. We get to sell it and make a profit. So as time progressed and we were doing lesser and lesser flips, these people are still wanting to invest with us. And so what we would do is we like, we, we don't have any house flips right now, but we can give you a, a minority share of this business that we're about to start to build these houses. And so we would, they would come up with the 30% you know, equity payment, uh, and then we would come up with a 70% loan, and then we would just build it. What makes a good neighborhood? Own, owners or tenants who have pride on where they live. You don't have to necessarily own a, 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 a property, but you do have to have pride where you live so that you're, you care about what's going on in that neighborhood. You care about what is happening, and you take care of your domicile, your house, your rental property, that sort of thing. All right. Let's zoom in. Double click. What can a real estate developer do to help engender pride in the tenants of these homes that he's developing? That's hard. Uh, a lot of that's natural. And so um, if you take take a non-Waco uh, answer, you take a, take a property or you take an area like South Congress, little older crowd in Austin. Yeah, a little older crowd. Everyone really likes to live there. When they when you ask them where they're from, they say they're from South Congress. You know, like they they find it in their identity that they are from this neighborhood. This is the neighborhood. Travis Heights is the neighborhood I live in. That sort of thing. And so, um, in order to for a real estate developer to really push a lot of identity or push a lot of ownership, uh, even when ownership's not there, um, he really needs to push like community events. He needs to push co- community um, outreach. I would say having neighbors that know each other and care about each other is super important. I'm not sure if a real estate developer can really push that completely. It really comes down to the type of people that are putting that are that are going into that um, 
property or that apartment complex. There's a there's a few apartment complexes in Waco that that you can live in um, that people say, oh, this is where I live in. They're like, oh, that's a super cool place to live. That's been around since 1970. It's a, has a courtyard in the middle, stuff like that. Really structuring a development so that there, it fosters community is probably the best thing that a real estate developer can do. Everything else is kind of on the the tenant slash owner. You're hearing from Travis Bauckham of Balcomy Capital, a real estate investment fund that recently has gotten pretty into the self-storage space. I can't turn on my Facebook without seeing a video from Travis pop up telling different insights into the self-storage industry and the trends therein. What's happening with this industry? How did you get involved with it? And where is it today? Oh, yeah. Yes. Previously mentioned, we were starting to struggle finding houses to, to reach yield with our private investors, that sort of thing. And so um, in 2020, when the pandemic hit, uh, we had a handful of houses. I was thinking I was going to lose everything. And I was like, I need to come up with something or I need to find a business to be in that even when there's a down market or there's a pandemic or there's just everything is going wrong, it still makes money. So I made a principle in my life that like anything I buy has to make money today this week or next month continually. So house flipping was not one of those things. And so I've slowly gotten out of that business, uh, primarily because with storage, it's like things can be bad. Things can be performing bad, but those tenants for the most part tend to pay because so, most of our tenants are paying less than $100 globally when you take all 1,800 of our units in various markets. Most tenants are pay, paying less than 100 bucks, And so it kind of, you know, Tenants pay on ACH, they pay on auto, auto draft on their credit card. So it comes out no matter, no matter what, it's kind of like a gym membership. And it's so cheap that coming and getting your stuff out of your, your unit ends up taking a lot more effort than what that $100 uh, rent, rent is. But we primarily got into that specific asset class because if you look at all the asset classes in the commercial uh, real estate sector, um, the one that has perform, performed the best over the last three recessions is self-storage. It's hard, there's hardly ever a real estate owned or a foreclosure in the self-storage space. And so we were thinking we're really good at house flipping, and there's a lot of defaults in house flipping, and we've never had one, and, and there's no defaults in self-storage. So we'll pr- And if we just take the same intensity, the same drive, and the same ambition to the self-storage space, we should be able to, to make a really big dent in that industry. When you look around Waco, you'll see there's a self-storage facility downtown at Franklin and 12th. There's a self-storage facility on 15th Street when I'm going to the ice cream shop, Alada's La Azteca. I hadn't even noticed these things 10 years ago. Were they there and I didn't notice them? Or has the category really exploded? Yeah, the, the older ones were definitely there, <laughs> the one close to the ice cream shop. Um, it is definitely, uh, like most real estate, it, you know, it kind of gets on a bandwagon. And kind of takes off. Um, right now, there is a lot of devel- self-storage development going on. There's also a lot of chatter about self-storage, so you're noticing it more. It's kind of like when you buy you know, a Hyundai Santa Fe. You didn't see any Hyundai Santa Fe's before. And now you see Hyundai Santa Fe's everywhere. Or if you buy a Jeep Wrangler, you never saw a Jeep Wrangler. Now you're seeing them everywhere. You're like, man, there's so many Jeep Wranglers. It's kind of a similar thing. So you got me uh, annoying you on Facebook. You're like, oh, self-storage. And you're like kind of your subconscious is starting to see it and you're seeing them out um there i would say there is a lot of development going on i think most markets are getting overbuilt um it takes you know it takes a year to even start building a a storage facility it takes 14 months to build it 
So that you know, year would be the entitlement phase, 14 months to build it. Then it takes a good three years to fill it up. It's probably 24 months after you get your first tenant uh, before you start breaking even. It starts paying for itself. So you're looking at almost a four-year span before you start breaking even. And so there's a lot of those going on in the market right now, specifically in Waco. We don't own anything in Waco specifically because we cannot find a piece of land that still that we feel still has enough demand for a shortage in supply for the demand that's there. Most of the areas we've looked at, I think we've had four pieces of land under contract in Waco, and all four of them, the feasibility study came back showing that there is too much supply for the demand. For the demand, and uh, you know, you just don't those buildings. You can't do anything with them except put people's stuff in them, and so you don't want to be wrong on on the demand study up, up front because it's just going to be painful for the next four or five years. The build-out and the facilities I've been to feels quite cheap and inexpensive. Is it a cheap enough building process that it could conceivably be a covered land play where you're just trying to utilize this land until a bigger and better use comes up when you build our apartment building? Yeah, I, I think at one point it was. I think it's now been, um, you know, for lack of a better term, institutionalized. There's a lot of REITs out there. There's private and public REITs. There's a lot of consolidation in the market. As far as, I'm not sure which ones you've been to, but even the climate control facilities are, you can build those for about 80 bucks a foot. That's an expensive one. And uh, But if you think about it, the tenants are also cheap too. Like they're not paying that much to be in there on that 10 by 10 climate control on that first floor, you're probably getting 135 to $150 a month. So you don't want to spend too much on it because you're just not making that much money on it. We only have a few minutes left together, Travis. And I know you're very involved in the business community and in general with, in touch with what's happening in the country. But I want to keep it kind of local here. Just as someone who's in the real estate space yourself, what's happening in Waco that's of interest to you? Is there a particular development, whether it's for residential or, hey, downtown, this new shop is opening up? What is it that's got your interest? Sure. I, you know, I would say generally uh, a lot of the stuff that piqued my interest in the past, I would say, is overpriced at this point in the market. If you're buying a, a, a major development or a building that you're going to do a major development, you're going to have to you're going to be coming through a recession. Either, you know, most economists say that's going to start Q2 of next year, Q3 of next year and continue till probably Q3 of, ne- of 2025. So I'm not getting too excited with the prices I'm seeing. I think they're going to come down. You can't have an empty building that you want $3 million for and, and owe money on and continue to kind of pay for that mortgage without going, okay, maybe I can take a little bit less. I would say one thing I'm really excited about is uh, Bradley Ford mentioned that they're, trying, they're seeking an RFP for a triple P uh, project, which is like private-public partnership. And uh, that that's that's like uh, most of downtown, and it's like a two billion dollar uh, thing. And, and Brad Brad's been able to get stuff done here in his short. Is this the project you're talking about to raise the convention center and create more walkable green yep. space? Yeah. Kind of connect the suspension bridge area more cohesively with Cameron Park. Exactly. I think there's a uh, the rendering had a baseball field of some sort on it. So you know there's. Stuff like that, I think, would really attract uh, young professionals to stay in Waco, and that would attra- that'll attract businesses, that sort of thing. And so, you know, it's it's, it's compounding. Um, he's done a good job. Brett, going back, to what I was saying, Brad has done a good job at, with the infrastructure, the three hundred million dollar infrastructure plan that has put sidewalks in most places that need sidewalks, and sidewalks that did in places that didn't need to seat sidewalks. Uh, there's a lot more safety regulations. Like you know, there's a there's 
red lights where there needs to be red lights where there wasn't red lights. And, you know, I think if he continues his, uh, you know, success, I think we'll have a successful PPP RFP, and, and that'll be great. But with that said, that'll probably take 10 years to do a $2 billion, you know, uh, project like that. But at the same time, that's where Waco needs to go to get to the next level, if, if you will. And so I'm pretty excited about that. I'm not going to be participating in that, uh, but I, I'll, I'll be happy to, you know, watch it go up. I really appreciate how ambitious that plan is. And yeah. I felt the exact same way when the city was looking at redeveloping that lot at Heritage Square at mm-hmm. 4th and Austin. And they seated with this civic group uh, that had a bigger idea to put in an office building. And of course, COVID hit and that didn't work. But I'm, I'm all about thinking aspirationally and build the city that you wish was there. And I, for one, would love to have a city with more green space and connected trails and more access to the Riverwalk. Sure. Uh, so I'm particularly glad that we're using good vendors. Like I think Gensler was the architecture group mm-hmm. that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, world renowned. So right. really awesome to see that Waco's putting their money where their mouth is there. Travis, if people want to keep up with you and your work, what's the best way for them to follow? Yeah, you can go to my website, uh, com. You can also find me on Instagram at Travis underscore Balcom. That's B-A-U-C-O-M. Those are the best places. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing in our Waco community and for sharing some of your story. Sure, man. Thanks again to Travis Balcom of Balcomi Capital and to you for tuning in to episode 158 of Downtown Depot here on Waco Public Radio. You can find me in between episodes on Facebook and Instagram at Waco Business News. And join us back here the first Friday of October for another conversation with a small business owner, civic leader, or engaged citizen sparking Waco's renaissance. I'm Austin Meek, and you've been listening to Downtown Depot, where we track the ins and outs of Waco business. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Wait.